when uh, Jeremiah was a baby and we were living in Pittsburgh, the three of us returned home late one cold night after traveling back from Christmas vacation in Lancaster, and we cranked up the heat, and we went to bed, and in the middle of the night, some crazy beeping noise woke Christina and me up, and I groggily got out of bed to look for this obnoxious noise, and you know how it is when you suddenly get woken up from your sleep, and you have to immediately look for something. It's, it's kind of an awkward thing, and so it, it wasn't eloquent to watch. I was not at my best. So I I looked around trying to find this beeping sleep slayer, and I finally found it, and it was in the basement, so I unplugged it, and I went back upstairs, and I climbed into bed. And would you believe that Christina wanted to know what it was? And so I told her it was the carbon monoxide detector, and uh, I was content to go back to sleep, but, (laughs) but for some reason, Christina wasn't. And so she thought something should be done, and so 911 was called, and we're alive today. So a round of applause for my discerning wife. Yes. When, when the police and the fire truck showed up to our house, our, our house became like some scene from a sci-fi movie. I mean, there were bright lights going, and, and their firefighters were dressed in these special suits, and there were blinking detectors on them, and it's like... <sighs> It was kind of that moment, if you can do it, it was epic. The carbon monoxide reading from inside of our house that they got was the highest they had ever encountered. It was dangerous, especially for baby Jeremiah. Here, there was a blockage in our furnace ventilation, and there are holes in the ductwork and seal, so carbon monoxide was pouring out into our basement and filling our house. The loud alarm was grace telling me, you better pay attention to this big problem or your family could die. And my response was, stop all the racket, just let me go back to sleep. Honestly, I just wanted the alarm to shut up so that I could go back to sleep in my warm bed. Couldn't we handle the problem in the morning? Well, I told you I wasn't at my best. So that that loud alarm saved our lives, especially the life of our precious son. Not listening would have been, could have been, the greatest tragedy of my life. There is a loud alarm sounding, and we need to hear it, and we need to hear the gospel. Lust is a big topic for a lot of people in this room, and the opportunity for guilt is big, too. But guilt is not the goal here. We may feel guilty, and that can be good if it pushes us to Christ. Seeing the beauty, supremacy, and transforming power of Christ in light of our lust and guilt will help us and motivate us to put lust to death. We must see Christ And I hope that this sermon arouses a hatred of lust in your heart, a hatred that translates into putting it to death in your heart, a hatred that that translates making movement ahead and, and applying the gospel to your struggle and to your sin. And some of you, you may hear the alarm and you might want it to just shut up, to stop beeping. You may not want to deal with your big problem. You may want to deal with it later, but listen, folks, there may not be a later. We must hear the alarm, look to Christ immediately, and submit to him as he powerfully works grace in our lives so that we can make progress 
by God's grace, we can make progress. This topic is too big for us to fight on our own. We need Jesus to give us grace to fight. The solution to this problem is supernatural. So I'm going to do three simple things in the next two sermons. Number one, sound the alarm that there is a big problem. Number two, identify that big problem. And number three, give the solution to that big problem. Now today I want to handle one and two. I want to sound the alarm that there is a big problem and then identify that big problem. Hope will come today, I promise, but realize that next week, uh, we'll explore, actually in two weeks, we'll explore the solution to lust in much greater detail. So most of the really great news in light of, of all that's today uh, will be the next time that we're on this topic. So I begin with number one, there's a loud alarm telling us there's a big problem. Unlike any other time in history, we have unprecedented access to sexually immodest, sensual, and provocative content anytime we want on various devices, some that fit into our pocket. We can access endless sexually explicit material with ease and relative privacy while at school, in a business meeting, even here at church, even right now. The beauty of covenantal and marital nakedness and sex is being aggressively attacked by the pervasiveness, accessibility, and enticement of sexually provocative content everywhere, from billboards to grocery stores to classrooms to your kitchen table stack of junk mail. Sexual content is seeping into homes and, in many cases, flooding them. Can you hear the alarm? Are you spiritually groggy? And some of us may be desensitized to the seriousness of this problem. We may be spiritually groggy, maybe preferring that the alarm just shut up so we can keep on doing what we love to do. Do you realize that the lusts of your flesh, the lusts of our flesh, are pulling us away from God, from greater pleasure in God? We need to hear the alarm and remember that sensuality, impurity, lust, sexual immorality, fornication, homosexuality, debauchery, and adultery, as pervasive as they may be in our culture, if tolerated and if pursued, lead straight to hell. With the authority of Jesus, Paul said, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul was talking about tolerating and pursuing lust and sexual sin with no ongoing battle and continual repentance. Sexual sin must be killed in us before it kills us. Consider for a moment pornography. Dictionary.com defines pornography as, quote, sexually explicit videos, photographs, writings, or the like whose purpose is to elicit sexual arousal End of quote. Brothers and sisters, the statistics on pornography and its pervasiveness are frightening. Here are some stats from Christian apologist Josh McDowell. In 1998, there were around 14 million porn web pages online. Today, in 2018, there's over 1.78 billion pages 
of porn online. That's at least a 12,614% increase in just 20 years, and we carry it in our pocket to access it anytime we want. 25% of internet searches in the world are porn. 35% of internet downloads are porn. 30% of all internet activity is porn. You know, is this just a problem for those gross, perverted men? Women make up one in three visitors to porn sites. Young girls are turning to porn to keep their boyfriends. The average age of first exposure to porn is eight years old. 90% of eight to 16-year-olds have viewed porn. 12 to 17-year-olds are the largest consumers of porn. I heard Levi Lusco say that one out of three... 13-year-old boys are heavy porn users on average watching 50 clips a week. Saints, porn is enticing men, women, and children. 77% of professing born-again men in church visit porn sites. Of those who identify themselves as Christian fundamentalist conservatives, that's a small group, 91% are more likely to watch porn than the average unbeliever. Porn is a problem for pastors and youth pastors. 80 to 90% of youth pastors watch porn. Porn increases a man's infidelity to his wife by 300%. Two-thirds of divorces happen because of pornography. Pornography is the number one cause of sex trafficking of children, rape, and sex abuse. Studies are being done... Uh, on the effects of porn, but they're increasingly difficult to do because researchers can't find many people who are not using porn for their control groups. Statistics show that there is almost no difference between believers and unbelievers when it comes to porn. Saints, can you hear the alarm? There's a website. It's called fightthenewdrug.org. Fightthenewdrug.org. It's not a Christian site, so I mention it with caution. But it sounds a pretty loud alarm. This secular organization reports this. Image after image, your expectations of sex, love, and relationships can evolve with your own sexual preferences changing dramatically as you continue to seek out more shocking content. No surprise then that in comparison, people and activities you used to really care about seem less interesting. Fight the new drug reports, studies have found that frequency of porn use correlates with depression, anxiety, stress, and social problems. Fight the New Drug reports, despite claims, <coughs> despite claims that porn will make you a better lover, study after study confirms the opposite. Porn users express less love for their partners and, more, and become more critical of appearances and less able to perform sexually. Other studies found users more disrespectful and aggressive within intimacy and less willing to stick around in a relationship. Bottom line, pornography is a scientifically proven guide to being a bad lover in virtually every imaginable way. Did you get that? A secular organization says pornography is a scientifically proven guide to being a bad lover in virtually every imaginable way. You would be an outright fool to ignore this alarm. Pornography is hurting all of us. And it's killing some of us. 
Porn is pulling people away from the everlasting beauty and thrill of God and leading them straight to hell to suffer forever without the beauty and thrill of God. And listen, the alarm isn't merely about what researchers consider pornography. What about all the immodest, sensual, and provocative content plastered everywhere that many don't even consider pornography? Victoria's Secret storefronts across from Build-A-Bear. Magazines at the grocery store checkout at child level, shampoo commercials, NFL sidelines, junk mail, mail underwear ads consider the pervasive, provocative content on YouTube, TV, and social media in popular DVD rentals, even with a PG rating, sexting, music, and vacations plastered all over Facebook, also easily accessed. Even church is not really a safe place because the standards of modesty, are really low for some professing Christians. Through the years, folks, I have seen shockingly provocative outfits at church. And maybe you have too. Hear the alarm. I am a sinful man with a pulse. I know the power of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, as John wrote about I feel the pull, the constant pull of my sinful flesh. It's a constant fight. And let me shoot it straight with you. Just about everywhere that I go and just about everywhere that you go, there is temptation to lust in one way or another. Temptation is pervasive. There are a lot of great ways to avoid temptation. They should be pursued. uh, But you can't escape it. Altogether, it is part of our culture. Even if pornography is avoided, and it should be at all costs, within moments of leaving your house, you are likely to be confronted with some sexually provocative image, if not on a billboard, on the radio, or some jogger, barely dressed jogger going past. If you're walking into Target, you better be ready for a a war. If, If you go to the grocery store, you better be ready for a war. If you sit down in a doctor's office, you better be ready for a war. If you have a smartphone, you carry the war in your pocket. But none of this is the big problem. See, the big problem has always existed, but the temptations which feed the big problem have dramatically increased and in a lot of ways have become inescapable in our technological and overtly sexualized culture. Saints, we need to hear the alarm. We need to wake up. And we need to address the problem with the gospel of Jesus Christ. With the gospel of a greater joy, a gospel of greater pleasure in God. Now, lots more should be said, but it's abundantly clear we have a big problem. Do you know what the big problem is? We have to understand the problem if we're going to find the solution to the problem. What's the big problem exactly? We may be tempted to think pornography or provocative content is the big problem. That's it. We're selling our TV. 
We're selling all the computers. We're selling TVs, Blu-ray players. We're canceling our trip to the beach. Hallelujah. Shopping only at Amish markets. From now on, kids, we're going back to rotary phones. Hallelujah. There's going to be some changes in our family. We're going to live pure lives, fall in line. It's going to be different around here. And you know what? Some of that might be good. Shopping at Hilltop Acres, you're just not going to have the same problems. The, the checkout lines just look differently. You know, the magazine racks aren't there. I don't think they are, are they? I don't, okay, see? Support Hilltop Acres. <laughs> now, some of what I just mentioned in that crazy off moment there might be good to do, but, but that kind of thinking ignores the heart of the matter and focuses merely on changing outward behavior. Folks, the big problem is not outward behavior. Changing our behavior is great, but it's not dealing with the big problem. Behavior modification doesn't go deep enough, and changing behavior only medicates the symptoms, but it fails to kill the disease. So, sexually explicit material is a problem, but not the problem. And changing behaviors, as helpful as that will be, is not the solution to the big problem. So what's the big problem? Jesus preached his famous Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. He explained for them the ethics or law of his kingdom. A kingdom very different than the kingdom of this world. Jesus gave a moral standard in the Sermon on the Mount that is impossible outside of saving and sovereign grace. Regeneration and the Holy Spirit's power. Impossible. The Sermon on the Mount is not about discipline behavior modification. Jesus preached what only he can do perfectly. No one else even comes close to living out Christ's kingdom ethic. Everyone else fails. And so Jesus' famous sermon exposes the problem of radical human depravity and moral inability. But don't miss this. It also defines a beautiful new life. The kind of life that Jesus can help you live by the Spirit. He's setting this kingdom ethic that is wonderful for believers. And Jesus is going to come through to help us live that. And finally, one day, it will come in full. He gives us this this picture of what a life of victory looks like, a life of of freedom, a life of joy. Jesus preached the kingdom lifestyle of greatest joy that he is kindly helping his people live. So I want to dig into this. In Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus preached this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Let's stop there. Jesus preached the law. Adultery is having sex with someone other than your spouse, and God forbids it in his law. Jesus preached the law. Jesus preached the seventh commandment, the the moral law. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Deuteronomy 5, 18, and you shall not commit adultery. Leviticus 18, 20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. There is no question about it. Adultery is absolutely wicked, and it destroys people. Keep in mind that Israel was a theocratic nation, meaning God himself was Israel's supreme civil leader. No president, God. God gave them their civil law. 
And it's different today. We have the church, no theocratic nation. But in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen theocratic nation. Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24, shows how seriously God took adultery inside his chosen theocratic nation. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her at the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, Though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Jesus' disciples, they were Jewish. They understood the law, and they understood no sleeping with anyone other than your spouse. Super clear. God would bring swift judgment and justice upon those who spurned his moral law. But here's what often happens. The human heart hears the command not to commit adultery and reduces it to outward behavior only. Hey, as long as I'm not sleeping around, I'm all good. Hey, as long as I look but I don't touch, I'm all good. Hey, as long as it's just a desire and it's never expressed, I'm all good. I fulfilled the command. That's not what the seventh commandment means. Jesus preached the law as it was supposed to be understood so that the holiness of God would be evident and the depth of human sinfulness would be exposed and our desperate need to be rescued from this is realized because what the law demands is perfect purity, perfect love, no lust or immorality at all, not even a hint of it. And Jesus didn't overturn the law in his teaching. He explained what it actually means because human nature reduces it to outward behavior. Jesus went past outward behavior to the root of the problem inside the human heart. Listen to what Jesus added in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There is a non-physical adultery committed inside of the heart. The body avoids as the heart chases. The problem isn't ultimately the outward act of adultery, though that is a huge problem. The problem is lust and sexual sin inside the heart before the act of adultery is ever committed in a hotel room or in a brothel, the fascination with the forbidden runs wild. The heart is the big problem. On this side of eternity, and please listen to me closely, on this side of eternity, even those secure in the grip of God's grace struggle deeply with sin in the heart. By the grace of God, our spirit is willing. We want to do what God wants us to do. But you see, as Jesus said, our flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. Jesus taught his disciples that there are serial adulterers who have never slept with anyone other than their spouse. 
Because adultery is not merely an outward behavior, but an inward lust of the heart. I'm an adulterer. You're an adulterer because of adultery in our hearts. I'd imagine that Jesus' disciples heard what he said and perhaps felt the heat. Do you know what I'm talking about? It seeps up in your face and you're like, I think I might be blushing right now. And they thought, and, and I wonder if they thought like, oh no, I cannot even count how many times I've committed adultery. Jesus' teaching is supposed to expose in us the overwhelming problem of our sinful desires. That our flesh wants what God forbids. The problem is that we are inclined by nature to gratify the sinful desires of our flesh. God's beloved and spirit-filled children who love him and want to serve him and, and, and want to be close to him are constantly being pulled away from him by their sinful flesh. A constant, everyday battle with the flesh. It's tiring. Who gets tired? I do all the time. It's just tiring. But it is where we are as our faithful God supplies us with grace. We're supposed to hear Jesus and think, as Paul did, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul felt the tension between the new man that we are in Christ and the old man and the flesh that just pulls us relentlessly away from God. He knew that tension. He knew he wasn't damned or condemned under the law, but he knew the pull of the flesh. It was real for him. And at the same time, with this tension, Paul, with Paul, we answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Do you understand that? Every true believer knows the struggle that Paul is talking about. When Jesus said, but I say to you, he wasn't abolishing God's moral law. He was authenticating his, his divine authority and teaching what the moral law actually meant. He was teaching the essence of you shall not commit adultery so that God's good law would never be reduced and that lawbreakers would not justify the sin that is alive in their heart. Jesus used the verb blepo, meaning to gaze towards or to fix your eyes on something, and in this case, a woman. But not just a look, it's a certain kind of look. To look at a woman to lust for her, with lust for her, with lustful intent. You see, intent is the key. And you know what? This goes for women as well. The context is men, but this, this, this goes both ways, folks. The Greek word for lust is epithumeo, which is in certain contexts can be used for good, earnest desires, but here Jesus used it negatively. Paul used epithumeo to translate the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not lust. To lust is to covet. Lust is coveting. It's ingratitude for what God has given you manifested in wrongful desire for what God has not given you. 
Lust is ingratitude for what God has given you manifested in wrongful desire for what God has not given you. To lust is is to set your mind, your will, your affections on something that God has not given you to enjoy. So understand, lust does not have to be sexual, but it oftentimes is. We all do this. We all lust. We all covet sometimes. Lust, just to be clear, is not the recognition of beauty, of physical beauty. Lust is not the good desire of two single people wanting to be together. Lust is not even the good desire for marriage and covenant nakedness and sex. But because of radical human sinfulness, these desires are corrupted and mutate into covetous desires, impure desires, lustful desires. And that's the big problem. Physical adultery is a big problem, but it always originates from the big problem, the covetousness in our hearts. If we rid the world of all pornography and provocative content, if all technology was immediately destroyed, if we all just dress in like multiple thick layers of wool investments and never left our home, the big problem would still exist. We are inclined by nature to commit adultery. Jesus defined the big problem like this, and he said this to his beloved disciples. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, adultery, sexual immorality. These are what defile a person. Do you understand Jesus? We are not defiled because of something outside of us, but because of something inside of us. Jesus never sinned. Park on that. Never. No straying thoughts. No sexual weird things popping into his head. No deviation from God's law at all. He is unbelievable. He is beautiful. Jesus shows us everything that that we are not. Jesus never sinned, never lusted because his heart is good. And yes, when God regenerates us, he gives us a new heart and the spirit lives in us, yet we still struggle with the lusts of the flesh, hence the war of our lives. Beyond the porn industry and every click, swipe and tap and gaze are people who deeply lust for power, for control, wealth, sex, illicit pleasure. Saints, this is not a struggle inside those wicked people out there. It's a struggle inside of us spirit-filled, saved, regenerated Christians who love God. It's a struggle. And though our spirit desires Christ, our flesh desires illicit pleasures, and this is the struggle of our lives. Besides the fact that every lustful look proves the corruption of our hearts, we also have the problem, and yes, it is a problem, of God's goodness and justice. In verse 30, Jesus mentioned hell. I think he did twice, if I'm not mistaken, maybe in 29 and 30. He mentioned hell. Without the solution, the big problem of lust in the heart leads to hell. And God sends people to hell because he is good and because he is just and they are not. Have you ever considered that a good and just God is a big problem for 
unrepentant idolaters who persist in their lust. Consider Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul wrote, To a church, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He told Christians to put sexual sin inside them to death and warned them of God's coming wrath. God's wrath is avoided when these things are put to death, not pursued. God is not unaware of the idolatry of the heart. So God warns to put these sins to death, which is possible for believers with the Spirit. No one else may know about that fleeting sexual thought that you have or that weird urge, but God knows. God knows. And if it is not killed by constant repentance and faith, God's wrath is coming. Before we click, swipe, or linger, it would serve us well to consider the fast-approaching wrath of God and our eminent need of being rescued from it by Christ. God has clearly told us in His Holy Word that He is coming to destroy unrepentant, sexually immoral people who refuse to kill their lusts. God cannot overlook unrepentant lust precisely because He is good, precisely because He is just. We wouldn't want him to be the kind of God that just looks the other way. He cannot do that because he is good and he is just. His goodness and justice, please get this, are the reason that he can forgive sinners. Because he poured out his wrath upon his son on the cross for believers and believers who trust in Christ and walk by the Spirit in constant war against the flesh are spared unto eternal pleasure in God. True Christians, they know what the big problem is and they know it lies deep within them, but they also know the solution. They also know the power of God's grace at work in them to bring true freedom, true joy, true peace, true victory. Do you know what the big problem is? It's not pornography. It's not provocative images. It's not even temptation. The problem is our sinful desires and the goodness and justice of God. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. The problem is God is good and you and I are not. That's a problem. That's a big, big problem. Jesus, just think about this, he was surrounded by sin every day of his life on earth. Horrible wickedness and evil and sin and he yielded to none of it because his heart is good. He is good. His heart is good, ours is not. But don't forget the message that he is working in us through faith to make our heart like his heart. The big problem is that we naturally want things that God hates and the beauty of the gospel is that God is putting those desires to death and enlivening new desires for godliness. I've sounded the alarm that there is a big problem. I've identified what the big problem is. What's the solution to the big problem? 
well, that's what the next time that I preach is on. But you know what? We can't stop here. We got to have some hope. We got to have some hope. Jesus Christ is the only solution. Uh, Jesus is without any lust or sin, and so his death is sufficient payment to free you from lust. Saints, the spirit of Jesus in you is killing lust and replacing it with purity and righteousness and love, and this is a true love that acts in the benefits of others. The spirit that empowered Jesus to overcome is the same spirit given you to overcome. The gospel is that we have a Savior who rescued us from bondage to lust and death, a Lord who reigns over lust and all sin, a conquering hero who broke the power of lust over you, a deliverer who lovingly leads you away from lust which is killing you to enjoy greater life in the pleasures of knowing God, a healer who forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives and lavishes us with his grace and sets us on a path of righteousness once again to pursue godliness for the glory of God. We are not without power to overcome lust. How did one man slay a thousand Philistines? The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. How was one young man able to slay an unrivaled military champion? Well, he tells us himself, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Our hope in the war against lust is the power of the Lord over lust, a power supplied by grace through faith. We fight best when we believe we are safe in God's grace, believe we are justified, believe we are forgiven, believe we are liberated, believe we are adopted, believe that we are dead to sin, believe we are loved, and we fight best when we are entirely confident that our Father will supply us with the pure desires so that lust falls dead on the spot and we win. Our solution is trusting that we are not our own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Our solution is trusting that our beloved Christ has fully paid for all our sins, including lust with his precious blood, and has actually set us free from all the power of the devil and lust. Our solution is that our king preserves us in such a way that without the will of our heavenly father, not a hair can fall from our heads. Indeed, all things, even our ongoing war with lust and sin must work for our salvation and our ultimate good. Our solution is that God, by his Holy Spirit, assures us of our salvation and makes us, this is so precious, saints, if you get this, he makes us heartily ready and willing from now on to live for him, which includes wanting with all of our heart for lust to fall dead in our heart and for us to put it to to death and for us to trust him to lead us there. Our solution is not our self-discipline. It is our faith in Christ who has won and has conquered. It's looking to Christ and trusting Him to act, trusting Him to lead us to victory. Turning the channel is good, but it's not good enough. Getting an internet blocker is good, but it's not good enough. 
putting boundaries around your relationships with the opposite sex. It's good, but it's not good enough. Accountability groups, they're really good, but they're not good enough. Christ is enough. His grace is enough. His unconditional love is enough. God accepting you only because of the merits of Christ is enough. Our solution to lust is trust. Trust in the one who conquered lust. Father, let us be clear. We are miserable without you. We are so prone to run as fast as we can to things that will utterly destroy us. And let us be clear that your grace is enough. That because of Jesus Christ and his immeasurable love for your chosen people, God, he gave himself to redeem us from the power of lust. And he gives us a beautiful picture of what it is for a man to be completely focused on obeying your law for your glory alone. So when we hear you shall not commit adultery, God, I pray that we know what it means. How deep this runs in our heart and I pray we look to Christ who fulfilled that command in every imaginable way and who has redeemed us to carry us with him, to work in us so that we can be like him, so that we will not only not commit adultery but want so much to be pure of heart that we shall see God. Oh God, work purity in us for your glory and for our greater joy in Christ. I pray that you will set people free from lust. Set us free, God, that we can walk a new kind of life with new thought patterns, new habits, new clicks, new scans, new ears. Help us to delight in your grace, your gospel so much that lusting would seem so weird and awful that we wouldn't do it because we're just so grateful for who you are and so grateful for your grace. Set us free. Give us strength to win some battles. Encourage some men here that they can do it with Christ if they trust him. Give them some small victories, God, where they say, hey, this feels great to serve God. Lead them, God. Help them not to be down on themselves and wallow in their sin, but look quickly to Christ to flee to the cross for forgiveness and deliverance. And may they love and cherish the Holy Spirit and how He leads them to new things, new desires, new habits. Transform families, transforms homes, help people to to get rid of some of the things that they have been doing and even leading their kids to do some of these things. Unchecked, just let their kids do anything they want, not even looking over their shoulder. Help parents to be parents and help them to be loving parents where they can walk alongside of their children to explain these things and to help them practically, to help them look to the gospel. Help us not to be slumbering parents, hearing an alarm and doing nothing, just wanting to go back to sleep. 
Help us to take action and to do it by your grace. This, this is too big for us, God. So I pray with confidence that you will help us navigate these tricky waters. We don't know what to do sometimes. It's just so big and out of control. So help us to take small steps of showing repentance and faith and joy and gratitude in your provision of grace. We love you, God. Help us to do it because you're most important to us. In Jesus' name, amen.